President Biden and the G7 leaders tell Ukraine today, we've got your back. Biden says Western nations are making a long-term commitment to Ukraine's security as the country moves toward eventual full membership in the NATO alliance. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, July 12th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, workers at UPS could be heading for a strike. It would be the largest walkout against a single company in U.S. history. So what you'll see is packages delayed, and then as the strike goes longer and longer, more and more packages will build up. Delays will just continue to snowball. We'll hear how the supply chain is being prepared for a potential UPS strike. And nominations for the 75th Emmy Awards came out in L.A. today. We'll hear about the shows that have not lost their luster. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden's delivered a major speech in Europe that praises the strength and solidarity of NATO. NPR's Asma Khalid reports Biden also urged continued support of Ukraine. Biden's remarks came at the end of a two-day summit here in Lithuania in which Russia's war with Ukraine and Ukraine's possible future membership in the alliance were key priorities. In his speech, Biden emphasized that NATO remains a force for global stability and security. We will not waver. I mean that. Our commitment to Ukraine will not weaken. We will stand for liberty and freedom today, tomorrow, and for as long as it takes. Biden said Russia's Vladimir Putin thought he could break NATO when he went to war with Ukraine, but it has remained united. The next stop for Biden on this European trip is Helsinki. Finland has long been non-aligned, but it sought NATO membership after Russia invaded Ukraine. Asma Khalid, NPR News. The president of Ukraine may have walked away without the confirmed timeline for NATO membership he wanted, but Volodymyr Zelensky did secure long-term security assistance from G7 countries, including the U.S. Biden and Ukraine's leader discussed long-range missiles and artillery shells that are currently in short supply. Biden says President Zelensky seems satisfied with the latest pledges. FBI Director Christopher Wray is defending his workforce against accusations of political motivations. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports on Ray's testimony today before the GOP-led House Judiciary Committee. Committee Chairman Jim Jordan of Ohio is accusing the FBI of pursuing a two-tiered system of justice. But FBI Director Chris Ray forcefully rejected that idea, saying agents who took part in the search of former President Trump's Florida home acted within legal bounds. Ray also denied trying to protect the current president's son, Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden has agreed to plead guilty to two misdemeanors for not paying his taxes. The FBI director is a registered Republican nominated to his current post by Trump. He says a House GOP proposal to cut FBI funding would be dangerous at a time of heightened gun and drug violence. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Less than three months after settling a defamation lawsuit over the 2020 election, Fox News is being sued for defamation again. Former Trump loyalist Ray Epps alleges he became former Fox host Tucker Carlson's scapegoat in the aftermath of the pro-Trump insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in 2021. The suit claims Epps was accused of being an undercover FBI agent responsible for the January 6th mob without presenting concrete evidence. Fox News fired Carlson earlier this year around the time the network agreed to a $780 million settlement with Dominion Voting Systems, which alleged its reputation was damaged by unsubstantiated allegations. Its equipment was rigged to cost then-President Donald Trump the election. It's NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is preparing the state for more rain throughout New England this week. The agency operates more than a dozen dams across the region to help mitigate floods along local waterways. Scott Oconee is the Corps' deputy district director for New England. He says this week the dams have kept about 60 billion gallons of water from flooding into the Connecticut River. So even though the, the Connecticut River and some of the tributaries to the Connecticut River were high, they would have been significantly higher. And as a matter of fact, in Holyoke, our operation of our dams was able to reduce the peak stages by somewhere between six and six and a half feet. The Army Corps of Engineers is now releasing some water, releasing it to make room for additional rainfall expected later this week. On a hot day like today, you might be tempted to set your AC way down. Well, Worcester Polytechnic Institute researcher Shi Lu says that should not be your approach. He says air conditioners only pump out cool air at one temperature, so setting your AC to a lower temperature won't make your house feel any cooler. It's like a light. You turn on the light, turn off the light. You cannot dim it. We cannot, you know, adjust it. You just on off. Liu also, Liu also says turning your AC low will add wear and tear to your system and eat up energy. He says people should use fans instead to help their ACs cool more efficiently. People traveling through Logan Airport during the summer tunnel closure have been warned by state officials to expect some congestion when heading out of the airport. WBR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez reports that some travelers have been spared from traffic headaches. Grayson Johnson of Texas picked up a rental car at Logan just three days after the Sumner closed. He says the car rental company sent him an email before the trip warning of potential traffic delays, but he didn't experience any. No, not really. It took us 15 minutes to get into town leaving the airport. Johnson says it was also relatively smooth coming back to the airport this morning. Keith Morin and his wife are visiting from Alaska. They picked up a rental car at the airport for a trip to Western Mass. He looked at Google Maps before heading west on the Mass Pike. There's some red going back across the tunnel. And then I get, on to get out of Boston. The congestion was predicted to add six minutes to his travel time. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. White Stadium in Boston's Franklin Park could soon be in for a major upgrade. A group of investors has proposed using $30 million to upgrade the facility used for Boston Public Schools sports. The stadium would also be home to a new professional women's soccer team. This proposal was the only one the city received following a request earlier this year for redevelopment proposals. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu plans to hold a community meeting tomorrow to get feedback on the plan. In the forecast, pretty hot out there right now. Temperature should fall to about 70 overnight tonight. For tomorrow, clouds and sunshine moving in and out. Another hot day in the upper 80s. Friday should retreat to the low 80s with showers and the rumble of thunder in the afternoon. Could have some drenching rain at times tomorrow. 90 degrees now in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. Inflation, which has been bruising Americans for more than two years, is finally losing some of its punch. Today, we learned that the cost of living in June was up just 3% from a year ago. That is the smallest annual increase since March of 2021. And what's more, forecasters say inflation could fall even more in the months to come. NPR Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott. Hi, Adrian. Sounds like some welcome news, Scott. What is behind this drop in inflation? 
Well, one big factor is gasoline. Uh, remember, a year ago, gas prices hit an all-time high after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Since then, gas prices have tumbled more than 26 percent. Uh, that's a big relief for people like Kate Blacker. She lives in Jersey City, New Jersey, and commutes about an hour each way to her job at a community college. I'm a lot less worried now than I was six months ago, eight months ago, when the prices were rising so rapidly, and I didn't know when that was going to cool down. Inflation has cooled dramatically since hitting a four-decade high a year ago. It's now fallen for 12 consecutive months. Uh, last month, we saw falling prices for airfares and for used cars. Uh, grocery prices also leveled off in June, although the price of restaurant meals continues to climb. And why do forecasters think that inflation is going to keep falling uh, over the next several months? Well, some price reductions are already in the pipeline. Uh, take rent, for example. People who are signing new leases on apartments this summer are seeing smaller rent increases than they did a year ago. Uh, that takes time to make its way into the government's inflation measure, but the writing is on the wall. Uh, likewise, the price that dealers pay for used cars at auction has been coming down for several months now, so we should see further savings uh, on used car lots. Economist Lael Brainerd, uh, who used to serve on the Federal Reserve Board and is now at the White House, also noted today that some corporations have kind of taken advantage of inflation to pad their profit margins. Uh, if their own costs went up maybe 5 percent, they raised their prices 10 percent. Uh, Brainerd told the Economic Club of New York today she expects those extra profits will get wrung out over time. It'll be important for corporations to continue to bring their markups down after having raised them to unusually elevated levels over the past two years, which would help in reducing inflation. Brainerd says chipping away at those extra profits depends on competition and uh, people like you and me, Adrian, getting more price sensitive. I know, I certainly have. Uh, but are our customers across the country becoming more careful shoppers? Some of them certainly are. Two years of high inflation has left a mark on the way people spend money, uh, and some of those changes could be lasting. Uh, for example, Kate Blacker says she and her partner are much more thoughtful now about their food purchases than they used to be. We didn't really look so much at the grocery prices before. It was more like, oh, let's look up a recipe and just get whatever it is that we need for that recipe. And we also used to eat out a lot more. And now it's something that we have to be much more conscious about in terms of our budgeting for that. Blacker also says she's cut back on concert tickets and even canceled her gym membership. Well, the Federal Reserve has, has aggressively raised interest rates in, in an effort to curb this inflation. Uh, is it ready to declare that it's won? Not just yet. Uh, inflation is still above the Fed's target, which is 2%. And analysts are fairly sure the Fed's going to raise interest rates at least once more when policymakers meet in a couple of weeks. Uh, if inflation continues to trend down, however, that could be the last interest rate hike for a while. And if so, that would reduce the risk of rising rates tipping the economy into a recession. NPR's Scott Horsley. Thanks, Scott. You're welcome. The Food and Drug Administration began cracking down on vaping back in 2020 by requiring products be approved for sale. To date, only 23 e-cigarette products are legal to sell, and they are all tobacco-flavored. Yet illegal products, notably the very popular disposable and flavored vapes, remain widely available online, in stores. And Piers Yukinaguchi explains why. Nancy Heredia Villanueva's oldest daughter had just started high school when she made a discovery that led her into a frustrating and convoluted drama. Her backpack was kind of hanging open and I went to zip it up and she got really defensive about it. And a fight ensued. It was like a tug of war over the backpack. Her daughter rested it away, then locked herself in a bathroom. 
Villanueva enlisted her husband. Me and him, we like tore the whole bathroom apart and we found four vapes behind the bathroom mirror. Villanueva was shocked. She had no idea her daughter, a soccer player, had gotten hooked on vaping the year prior. She'd neither seen nor smelled vapors from the colorful, candy-flavored disposable e-cigarettes. Sale of those are illegal under both federal and New Jersey state law. But her daughter and other underage friends bought them at a gas station in a town next to Dunellen, where they live. Enraged, Villanueva and another parent confronted the store's cashier. I want to know why you're selling our kids vapes. Villanueva filmed the video, then posted it on a mom's group. But you have sold them vapes because all our kids bought vapes from this store. That video went viral. Responses to it startled her. I was getting death threats, like my kids were threatened, my husband was threatened. Often by kids who frequented that gas station. I didn't even realize until that happened that it was such a huge issue. All the kids in all the local towns and cities all knew about that place, and they were upset that I had brought to light that they were selling to underage kids. Regulators want to restrict e-cigarette use to adults, but in reality, the market for illegal vapes that appeal to young people continues to expand. Christy Marinak is a senior scientist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Her recent analysis shows explosive growth, especially of unapproved products. The number of brands increased by 46 percent over two years to about 200 brands. And those brands market thousands of products. This is an industry that is very motivated to stay in business and continue marketing products that are highly addictive and heavily flavored. Products that repopularized used nicotine use within the past decade. And you see an increase of over 2,000 percent of high school users using disposables now that the FDA has said is illegal, that is contraband. Richard Marianos is a former assistant director at the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. He says nearly all the world's e-cigarettes, 90 percent, come from factories in Shenzhen, China. But poor diplomatic relations make it hard to stop the influx. As you can see from dealing with the economy or spying or balloons being flown over the United States, that stopping producing vapes to kids is not their top priority. Recently, the FDA took more steps. It banned imports of some popular black market products, including Elf Bar and Escobar. It also sent warnings to nearly 200 retailers selling them. Will such measures work? Dorian Furman isn't sure. She co-founded Parents Against Vaping e-cigarettes. Hopefully, we will see a slowdown in the flood of products that are coming in through China. But she says the constant introduction of new brands and products makes it hard to close loopholes. Tomorrow, you might have a totally different brand. Like you have these brands called Fume. You have other brands, which means that they're going to have to be very comprehensive in the names of the brands that they put on these lists. That's why many anti-smoking advocates argue local inspection of retailers and fines are necessary. But Nancy Heredia Villanueva, the mom who stormed the gas station, says her local authorities haven't shown interest. First, she reported the store to police. I had to actually email ordinances to the uh, detective because he had no idea. And then even then he's like, well, what am I supposed to do about it? Then she complained to the mayor. What is being done? And I pretty much got nowhere with that either. There's lots of laws in the state of New Jersey, There's even in our own town, but there's not a plan as to how to enforce it. 
Frank Armstrong owns Blue Ridge Tobacco, a chain with seven tobacco stores in North Carolina and Virginia. He says local inspectors already monitor for underage sales and now should crack down on sales of illegal vapes. He's removed products the FDA cited from his shelves, but noticed they're still available elsewhere. Today I went online and said, okay, if I wanted to get elf bars, where would I get them? You go online, look at all the people that are selling them. So Armstrong says stores need clarity about which products are legal to sell, as well as inspections to back it up. If there's no enforcement, then we're the only ones that are taking them off the shelves and our competition is not. Therefore, then I lose business to the guy down the street. Meanwhile, the fight continues for New Jersey mom Nancy Heredia Villanueva, a year and a half after discovering her daughter's vapes. She says education and even awareness remain a challenge. A lot of parents are ignorant to the fact like, oh, my kid's not doing that. I was one of those parents. Her daughter, now 16, thought vapes were harmless, like fruit-flavored water. But in fact, Villanueva says her daughter went through withdrawals before eventually quitting. I feel like it impacted her mental health, too. You know, it's been very difficult. Like, I just feel like she wasn't the same after that. Villanueva says she still gets threats, but says it only makes her more outspoken. But I didn't back down. I mean, I'm not the type of person, especially when it comes to my children and their safety and their well-being, I'm not going to back down. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. Mexico has been rocked by violence over the last few days. Police have confronted protesters in the state of Guerrero, and overnight a series of explosions left six people dead in Jalisco State, NPR's Ader Peralta reports. The violence started Monday when thousands of protesters blocked the highway that runs from Mexico City to the beach town of Acapulco. Protesters demanded the release of a bus driver who was found with weapons and drugs, and they quickly overpowered security forces. They kidnapped more than a dozen police officers and government officials. Police say they were mobilized by a criminal group known as Los Ardillos. In the end, at least six people were killed. And as the week went on, things only got worse. On Tuesday night, another organized crime group detonated seven improvised explosive devices targeting police officers in the state of Jalisco. At least six people were killed. Es eh, un acto de terror. It was an act of brutal terror, said Governor Enrique Alfaro. President Andrés Manuel López Obrador blamed the violence on government neglect. He said organized crime had filled the void. And now, in some parts of Mexico, they have enough popular support to cause mayhem. Ada Peralta, NPR News, San Marcos de Colón, Honduras. You are listening to All Things Considered. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, film critic Bob Mondello tells us about Tom Cruise still doing his own stunts in Cruise's film being released today, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Across the board gains on Wall Street today. The Dow picked up a quarter of a percent. S&P and Nasdaq closed at their highest level since April of last year. S&P gained three quarters of a percent. The Nasdaq rose more than a full percent. Truck rental company Penske will pay Massachusetts a settlement of up to three and a half million dollars. Attorney General Andrea Campbell alleges the company conducted nearly 200 fraudulent safety and emissions inspections at its new Bedford facility. The heavy-duty trucks with the fake inspections were rented, she says, and leased for commercial use. The six workers who conducted the bogus inspections are barred indefinitely from doing that type of work again. It's 420. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage. 
over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing. Goodnewsgarage.org. In the forecast, sunshine and clouds now overnight tonight. Some thunderstorms right about 70 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny with highs close to 90 again. It is 90 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with a variety of British mysteries available for streaming, including all seasons of Luther, Father Brown, and Silent Witness. Available during Mystery Month at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. One of the most cutting-edge and controversial fields of biomedical research right now is the quest to create eggs and sperm in the lab for anyone with their own DNA. And now private companies have jumped into the race to revolutionize the way humans reproduce. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein reports on what these startups are up to. It's a cloudy day in Berkeley, California. I turn onto a gritty side street near the San Francisco Bay and ring the bell on a low concrete building with big frosted glass doors. I'm Rob Stein from NPR. Hey, I'm Matt Krisiloff. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Matt Krisiloff is one of the founders of a company called Conception. So let me find them real quick. We walk through a big open space filled with computer stations to find a quiet room. What are you guys trying to do? What's Conception all about? Yeah, so basically we're trying to turn a type of stem cell called an induced pluripotent stem cell into a human egg, ultimately with the goal, if it's safe, to do it for fertility purposes. And why? Really opens the door if you can create eggs to be able to help people have children that otherwise don't have options right now. Like women whose eggs are too old, enabling them to have their own genetically related kids at any age because induced pluripotent stem cells can be made from just a single cell from anyone's skin or blood. So these lab-grown eggs would have all of their DNA. It's called in vitro gametogenesis, or IVG. My personal biggest interest in it is that it could allow same-sex couples to be able to have biological children together as well. Um, Yeah, I'm gay and it's something that got me so personally interested in this in the first place. Same goes for one of Krisloff's co-founders, Pablo Hurtado. There is something intrinsic sharing a life that is half me and half my husband. I don't have that capacity right now and I am devoting my life to try to change that. Because IVG could create eggs from one of his cells that could make a baby with sperm from his partner. Vice versa for lesbian couples. Same goes for trans couples. And they say the company's gotten closer to making IVG a reality than anyone else. To show me what they've done and how, Bianca Serres, their third co-founder, takes me into their lab. It's quite loud in here with all the machines running. The big labs packed with specialized equipment. Dozens of scientists wearing white lab coats are busy conducting experiments. Hurtado opens an incubator and pulls out a clear round lab dish. These are primordial gem cell light cells. Stem cells that the company made from human blood cells and then coaxed into developing into cells that could become either sperm or eggs. 
they already decided that they are going to become an egg or a sperm, but they haven't decided yet that they are going to become an egg, and that's something that we do later on. Instead of clumping together in colonies like stem cells, each primordial germ cell-like cell is visibly much more distinct. So in this case, you can see each individual cell as a circle. Can I look through the microscope to see what they look like? Yeah, please look for the microscope. Oh, wow. Yeah, I see them. Once they start to become something else, start to become a little bit more independent or something? Yeah, they are maturing into becoming more independent. And in fact, fun fact is, X cells are truly independent and they actually will need to become one cell within that follicle. A follicle, the part of a woman's ovaries that cradles each egg into maturity. Hurtado quickly returns the cells to the incubator and pulls out a rectangular dish. These are some of our mini ovaries. These are a few weeks old now. The mini ovaries are combinations of cells the company made to nurture the primordial germ cell-like cells into their next step of development. Another microscope projects what's in that dish onto a screen. Hopefully what you can appreciate here is you can see our mini ovary. And then you can see a lot of dots that are really red fluorescent. Each of those cells is a germ cell. A germ cell, a very immature human egg cell. I like to call it a Christmas tree because it's like all the lights make people happy when they see something like this. <laughs> but, but this is sort of like a little factory to make human eggs for women who are infertile or gay men who want to have babies. Yeah, yeah. It's really exciting to be working on a technology that can change the life of millions of humans. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Within a year, Krislov hopes they'll prove the follicles in those mini ovaries can mature the immature eggs into fully developed eggs. And so as far as we know, we're the first in the world that have been able to do this. So it's really exciting because we think it means we're quite close to being able to have proof of concept human eggs instead of this abstract idea that's really just an imaginative science fiction idea that really indicates that, hey, this technology is actually closer than people think. Now, the company's only released a few details about their experiments, so independent scientists can't validate their claims, and some are skeptical. Kristoloff acknowledges that a lot more research is needed to prove the company could produce viable eggs that would be safe to use. But he's confident they're on the cusp of success. Already, the work is creating a lot of excitement, but also a lot of concerns. This could take us into a kind of a Gattaca world. Marcy Darnowski runs the Center for Genetics and Society in Berkeley. She says, combined with new gene editing techniques, IVG could fuel all kinds of dystopian scenarios, including designer babies. Combining IVG and genome editing and commercialization, you've really got kind of a toxic stew to create people who are supposedly biologically superior to others. We don't want to pave the road toward any kind of future that looks anything like that. But for another perspective, I travel about an hour south to talk with Stanford University bioethicist Hank Greeley. Have a seat. Thank you. I'm a fan of the IVG idea. I think it offers the possibility for millions of couples who desperately want to have kids that are genetically half one, half the other, who can't do that now, to have those children. That said, Greeley also worries about commercial pressures pushing IVG too fast. Rob, I live in Silicon Valley where the motto is move fast and break things. Of course it worries me. Happily, the FDA does not want you to move fast and break things, and the FDA has 
a lot of power. I'm confident the FDA will use that power because we don't think babies are like iPhones. Greeley acknowledges that there are lots of possibilities that raise thorny questions, like using cells from children, the elderly, even dead people to make babies, or cells stolen from celebrities to make babies without their consent. A person could even make babies with nothing but their own DNA. Part of me says, you know, why worry about these wild scenarios? Who in the world would do that? And then I think there are 8 billion people in the world, and, you know, there are some rich megalomaniacs out there, we won't name names, who I can imagine might think that was cool. Back at conception, Matt Krisloff and his colleagues acknowledged the concerns, but they told me they would welcome government regulation. Can it go down pathways where, you know, people try and do weird, like, designer aspects or much more out there things? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair thing to worry about, and there's all sorts of gray areas that society really needs to figure out. But, yeah, opening the store for so many more people is including, you know, me and Pablo, a really cool thing. If it could lead to so many people being able to have families and children being able to have lives, I just think that's a really beautiful thing. Rob Stein, NPR News, Berkeley, California. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about six minutes, President Biden says NATO will help Ukraine defend itself against Russia now and into the future. His vow at the NATO summit coming up in just about six minutes. Generally sunny afternoon and evening. Clouds, the chance of wind-driven rain overnight tonight, about 71 for a low. Tomorrow, partly sunny, still hot, once again close to 90 degrees, which is where it is right now, 90 degrees at 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. The future of mining the metals we all need may not be in mountains or deep underground. It might be underwater. We've identified 1.6 billion tons of these polymetallic nodules, like the one in my hand. They literally lie on the ocean floor. That's enough to build around 280 million EV batteries. The controversial future of deep ocean mining. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden praised the strength and solidarity of a NATO of NATO at the close of a two-day summit in Lithuania today, calling for continued support of Ukraine in its war with Russia. That ongoing conflict and Ukraine's future membership in the alliance were key priorities during the NATO summit. President Biden says the U.S. and NATO allies will not waver in their commitment to aid Ukraine. When Putin and his craven lust for land and power unleashed his brutal war on Ukraine. He was betting NATO would break apart. He was betting NATO would break. He thought our unity would shatter at the first testing. He thought Democratic leaders would be weak, but he thought wrong. Biden is now on to Helsinki for his next European stop. Finland has long been a neutral military, taken a neutral military stance, but sought NATO membership after Russia invaded Ukraine more than a year ago.
Meanwhile, leaders of Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand were all on hand for the summit. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley says the four Asian nation leaders all share the alliance's democratic values and message. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg thanked Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida for attending the summit and also for visiting Ukraine recently. What happens in Asia matters for Europe, and what happens in Europe matters for Asia. Security is uh, not regional security is global. Stoltenberg said nothing illustrates that more than the war in Ukraine. China said in a statement its image at the summit is being distorted and basic facts being ignored. Kashida called the security of Europe and the Indo-Pacific inseparable and said unilateral attempts to change the status quo by force or coercion will not be tolerated. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Health experts are calling for more efforts to address racial disparities and the amount of complications in pregnancy. A new report from the Massachusetts Department of Public Health shows serious health problems have nearly doubled in a decade and black patients suffered the highest rates of complications. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey has more. Experts say expanding access to doulas and telehealth are among the strategies that could help pregnant patients of color. Indidi Amaka Amuta Anukaga is a professor at Tufts University School of Medicine. She says healthcare providers need to listen better to Black patients. Patients will tell you the symptoms that they're having. They will tell you what they are going through. And so for providers to not prioritize those symptoms or for providers to not illuminate those are missed opportunities, and those are things that can be done now. She says when patients feel dismissed, their health problems may go untreated, leading to dangerous complications. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. Eleven cats, nine dogs, and a chinchilla are about to land in Massachusetts. They've arrived from Vermont. They were evacuated by the MSPCA after Vermont was hit with severe flooding. The organization's director of adoption, Mike Kiley, says their relocation will open up space in Vermont for other animals whose owners cannot currently take care of them because of the flooding. So it's very much a challenging situation and compounded by the fact that there's a lot of roadways and ability to move in and out of Vermont is limited. So luckily they can get to the airport. The rescued animals will be distributed to MSPCA adoption centers across the state and will soon be ready for their new homes. An air quality alert is in effect in southern Bristol and Plymouth counties and on Cape Cod and the islands. It'll be in place until 11 tonight. The State Department of Environmental Protection expects the air quality to be unhealthful for people with heart or lung disease, older adults, teenagers, and children. And the northern lights may be visible in parts of the state tonight and tomorrow should be able to see them because of what's called a geomagnetic storm. Offer Cohen is a physics professor at UMass Lowell. He says the ideal time to see the lights is between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. The main point is to look for a dark location outside of the city and hope to have a clear sky that we can see it. Cohen says to look toward the horizon for the lights. You might also be able to scan the sky to see them. The aurora may be visible this week as far south as Maryland. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. A dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. Generally sunny this afternoon and evening, overnight tonight. We could have some rain, but also some clearing, so you might be able to see the northern lights, hopefully. And for tomorrow, clouds and sunshine both. Another hot day. Temperatures in the upper 80s. It is 90 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Heads of state from 31 countries have wrapped up their annual NATO meeting in Lithuania. Top of the agenda was Ukraine and whether to let that country join the transatlantic alliance. As he left the capital, Vilnius, President Biden gave a speech addressing the Lithuanian people. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley was there listening to all of it. She's with us now. Hey, Eleanor. Hi, Mary Louise. Okay, start with a speech from President Biden. What did he have to say? What did he want to say to Lithuanians? Well, Biden spoke at the university in the old town of Vilnius. There were thousands of people there, and the streets were blocked off around the, the, the university, and there were people listening to Biden's speech outside on their cell phones. It was a rousing speech about democracy and freedom and the power of Democratic allies sticking together. Here's a little of what he said. When Putin and his craven lust for land and power unleashed his brutal war on Ukraine. He was betting NATO would break apart. He was betting NATO would break. He thought our unity would shatter at the first testing. He thought Democratic leaders would be weak, but he thought wrong. So Biden said Ukraine's allies would not waver and that the U.S. will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. And I guess President Biden also sat down with Ukraine today, or at least with Ukraine's president, Zelensky. Um, The headline from that was no path to NATO for Ukraine, at least for now. That's right, uh, because of the ongoing war. But Biden said Ukraine's future is in NATO. And as Ukraine moves toward NATO, Biden and the other G7 countries announced a massive program of long-term bilateral security commitments to help Ukraine defend itself and deter future Russian aggression. Biden said, quote, we are going to help Ukraine build a strong, capable defense across land, air, and sea. You know, Biden and Zelensky also sat down together in armchairs for a bilateral meeting. Biden told Zelensky the whole world has been impressed by the courage and commitment of the Ukrainian people. Here's a little of what he said there. When you see a 65-year-old woman on television after her apartment's been bombed out, picking up the piece and going to help next-door neighbor, I mean, it's, it's, it's just astounding. You're setting an example for the whole world of what constitutes genuine courage. You know, before arriving at the summit, Zelensky called not having a timeline for Ukraine to join NATO absurd, but he changed his tone and appeared a lot more grateful today. He thanked NATO allies and Biden and the American people and the U.S. Congress for standing with Ukraine from the very first days of the war. Just briefly, big picture, Eleanor, what else was achieved at this summit? Well, they've strengthened and enlarged the alliance, which is precisely what Russia did not want. NATO overreach was one of the reasons President Vladimir Putin gave for invading Ukraine. So Sweden is now probably going to join. Turkey lifted its opposition, so there'll be 32 members. Mm -hmm. And the alliance has also agreed to boost defense spending, whereas 2% of GDP used to be a ceiling. It's now the floor. And Pierre's Eleanor Beardsley on the ground for us in Vilnius, Lithuania. Thanks so much. You're welcome. 
Nigerians have endured tough economic times in recent years, and now the cost of fuel has almost tripled. The new president has removed a subsidy that kept prices artificially low for decades. A lot of experts think it's the right move to get Africa's largest economy back on track. But the hit to millions of people has been profound. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwad, who reports from Lagos. Fuji songs and the hum of generators pulse from a pocket of Balogun Market, a vast mass of hustle and energy. Customers search the stores that line the walkways and old colonial-era streets of Lagos Island. On the roadsides, Endless stocks of fabrics, jewelry, groceries and cosmetics are sold by hundreds of traders. Many are like Kenide Adebajo, a 56-year-old beautician and barber who has worked here since he was 16. He explains in Yoruba that for years he thrived here, but now he barely gets by. I've been working here since morning now, working and working, but I haven't eaten, he tells me, and says the government should have mercy on us. From the shade of his narrow store, he threads a woman's eyebrows and describes how hard things are. Now he buys half as much fuel as he used to, and how the cost of fuel has become so expensive. And this is why. The first subsidy is gone. The fuel subsidy is gone, announced President Bola Ahmed Tinubu to the surprise of many at his inauguration at the end of May. The subsidy has been in place since the 1970s and ensured Nigerians paid far less for fuel than the market rate. Nigeria is a major oil producer but doesn't refine its own oil, so even though it produces crude oil, it still has to import it, which makes it expensive. One of the world's largest refineries opened in Nigeria this year, but still, it will likely be years before Nigerians feel its impact. Abi only gives me his first name. He's 38 and an IT technician at Palogun Market. He says he's working but not earning anything. In May, fuel was 180 naira, roughly 25 cents for a litre. Now it's almost tripled to about 500 naira, 65 cents, and has driven up the price of food and transport. Everyone is suffering right now, I swear to God, Abby says. The cost of fuel we're buying right now is too much. Last year, the fuel subsidy cost a quarter of Nigeria's entire budget. So the consensus was it had to go. But the ripple effects of removing it were instant. Abby says that if he was less moral, he would steal. He has a family and they're struggling to manage. He says buying fuel is like wasting money, but he can't work without it. His generator hums in the background and powers the workstation in his store. But keeping it on has never been more expensive. Economists have largely praised President Tinubu for the decision and other swift moves meant to revive Nigeria's economy in the long term and make it more attractive to foreign investors. But in a country where 70% of the population live in poverty, the impact has been immense. The World Bank says 7 million people could be plunged into poverty by the end of the year. And for Nigerians, this is just the latest blow after several difficult years. People cannot even afford to paint nails or fix lashes. 36-year-old Angela Lawal is also a beautician who fixes nails and eyelash extensions. She says her sales have dropped because some of her customers can't afford beauty treatments 
when they're struggling to afford food. Some people don't have enough money to pay the rising transport costs and come to work, she tells me. On Lagos buses, commuters now regularly plead with passengers to sit on their lap called lapping and split the cost of their seat. They are lapping themselves. We are lapping ourselves. Angela now spends less time with her three children. She hasn't seen them in days because she can't afford to go home every day. So she leaves them with someone during the week. It's helped her save money on transport, but it's a difficult compromise to make. How difficult is that for you, not seeing your kids during the week? It's very difficult, but I had to enjoy it. I had no choice. The government say that support is coming, but it's not clear when. So millions like Angela wait and hope that it arrives soon. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Lagos. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. It's that time of year, summer movie season, and in theaters today, Tom Cruise is back as IMF agent Ethan Hunt in his seventh Mission Impossible movie. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. It's a long title and a long movie at two hours and 43 minutes, but NPR's film critic Bob Mondello says that like its ever-on-the-run main character, the film always seems to have one more surprise in store. Technology is taking over. The world is changing. Removing guardrails. Truth is vanishing. And it's time for the one man who can to stand up. War is coming. That, at any rate, is the gist of Dead Reckoning Part 1, which wants to stop not a bad guy, but technology from destroying all we hold dear. You've no idea the power I represent. You could argue, of course, that fighting against technology is also what drives Tom Cruise's movie career, while other film heroes, both super and non, are green-screening their way to glory with digital effects, the world's most bankable movie star has made a fetish of doing things the old-fashioned way, physically on screen, no matter how preposterous the things might be in real life, as in what is easily the least practical but most idiotically enjoyable method of boarding a moving train a filmmaker has ever come up with, that death-defying motorcycle-off-a-cliff bit that's absolutely everywhere online these days. Why does Ethan need to be on the train? Well, that has to do with an artificial intelligence entity, called cleverly enough The Entity, a black market arms dealer, an enigmatic pickpocket, and a sadistic ghost from Ethan's past, all of them in pursuit of a tricky two-part key thingy that will do something that'll be revealed next year in part two. In the meantime, director Christopher McQuarrie has lots of setting up to do about the pickpocket, who is understandably skittish around the impossible missions force until Ethan explains his personal credo. Your life will always matter more to me than my own. About the sadist who works for the entity and has figured out that Ethan's weak spot is that he cares so much about his pal. If anything happens to them, there's no place that I won't go to kill you. And an assortment of entertaining bits involving latex masks, computer choreographed chases, and lots of daredeviltry. Hang on! All of it as cinematic as it is time-honored. Some grad student will no doubt write a thesis one day about Dead Reckoning's homages to earlier action classics, the Hunt for Red October's depth charge sequence, this time with an AI payoff. Lawrence of Arabia's desert chase on horseback, augmented with AK-47s. The Mini Cooper pursuit from Italian job done with a Mini Fiat and a Hummer. People are chasing us. Yes, they are. 
you're driving. And everything that's ever been done atop a train in a movie capped by a locomotive plunging from a bridge sequence that tries to one-up Buster Keaton's The General. As if that weren't enough, the directors also found a way to do several nods to the Poseidon adventure on a train, which I'd not have thought possible, but where there's a will, I guess. To cut to the chase, as it were, Dead Reckoning is a state-of-the-art blockbuster that's also defiantly old-school, suspenseful in ways no digital effects fest can hope to match. Who is that person? I have no idea. It is at once ridiculous and ridiculously entertaining, a bone-rattling, adrenaline-pumping thrill ride with a 61-year-old movie star who seems determined not just to save the world, but to save Hollywood while he's doing it, it'd be impossible not to root for him. Looks like we lost them. I'm Bob Mandela. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the director of the FBI faces heated questions from Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee. In sports, New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft, a former Pats GM Bucko Kilroy, and Patriots Hall of Famer, Fame receiver Stanley Morgan have been named semifinalists for the NFL Hall of Fame. Kraft has owned the Pats since 1994. The team has won all six of its championships since then. Summer basketball tonight at 10 o'clock. The Celtics take on the Los Angeles Lakers in Las Vegas in NBA Summer League action. Also, the New England Revolution host Atlanta United FC tonight in Foxborough. The Revs are third in Major League Soccer's Eastern Division. This is WBUR. President Biden is talking about climate change as an economic issue. When I think of climate, I think of jobs. But approval of his climate record has gone down, particularly with younger voters. Allowing drilling in the Arctic, again, um, kind of like undermines my faith a little bit. Why Biden makes climate about jobs. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. In a minute, we'll hear about why more than 300,000 UPS workers are prepared to go on strike and what it could mean for the delivery of key products. But first, when actress Yvette Nicole Brown helped announce the nominees for the 75th Emmy Awards today, she couldn't help getting a little excited about some contenders for Best Actress in a Limited Series. Dominique Fishback, Swarm! Catherine Hahn, Tiny Beautiful Things, all my friends. Okay. And Ali Wong, beep! Brown's audible joy, a reflection of how startling some nominations can be. There were some welcome surprises, but also unexpected snubs this year. Here to help us sort through it all is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Eric, thanks for joining us. Yeah, great to be here. Let's get to the news of the moment. Which uh, shows got the most nominations, and, and what does that say about the state of quality, quality TV right now? Well, um, HBO Succession got the most nominations of any series at 27, followed in succession by The Last of Us 
and The White Lotus, which are both dramas on HBO, and Ted Lasso, the Apple TV Plus comedy. Now, HBO and HBO Max got the most nominations of any platform at 127 nominations mm. total, and that's about 24 more than Netflix. Uh, we see The Last of Us joining this new elite of most nominated TV shows because last year, Succession, The White Lotus, and Ted Lasso got the most nominations of any TV series. This year, The Last of Us joins that crowd among the only four series to get more than 20 nominations this year. And because of that, we're seeing competition really heat up in the drama and comedy series categories rather than limited series, which we used to see years ago, where you often saw movie stars leading these one-season shows that had big budgets. Well, Eric, you know, we hear a lot about how there are so many shows out there that it's hard for people to keep track. Uh, why do you think that such a narrow group of series are, are dominating the nominations? Well, first I'd say the TV Academy did a pretty decent job of recognizing performances in new shows like The Last of Us, The Bear on FX slash Hulu, and Wednesday and Beef on Netflix. But there's always this question of whether the Academy's voters actually watch these shows deeply enough. Look at like the Best Supporting Actor in a Drama category. There were eight nominations, and they were filled by actors from two shows, mm -hmm. Succession and The White Lotus. And in fact, all eight major actors from Succession's cast all got nominated for Emmys this year. I mean, in the Best Supporting Actress from a Drama category, five of the eight slots went to people from The White Lotus. But still, we had wonderful surprises. Netflix's road rage story, Beef, became the first Asian-created show to score a Best Limited Series nomination. And Dominique Fishback got her first Emmy nod for the Prime Video Limited Series, Swarm. And that's probably why uh, Yvette Brown was so uh, excited. Yeah. Well, with these kinds of surprises, there probably come a few snubs. Uh, which ones stuck out to you this year? Well, in the, in the major categories, it had to be Harrison Ford, who was probably the biggest star who was eligible. He could have been nominated in comedy for Apple TV Plus's Shrinking and in drama for Paramount Plus's Yellowstone spinoff, 1923, but he got snubbed in both categories. So did his 1923 co-star, Helen Mirren, and the cast members and people from Yellowstone. Donald Glover's com comedy for FX Atlanta, which ended its series run last year, was also shut out of major categories. So some surprises. Well, as we speak, Eric, uh, the Screen Actors Guild is nearing a negotiation deadline tonight with studios in Hollywood for a new contract. Uh, the Writers Guild of America is already on strike. If the Actors Guild doesn't reach an agreement today and joins the writers on strike, uh, will the Emmys uh, even air on Fox in September? I think it's highly unlikely. It would be tough to persuade the actors uh, to appear at the Emmys if they're on strike and without famous actors, viewers won't watch. There's been reports suggesting the Emmys could air uh, in November or even move to January of 2024. A long strike lasting into the fall is going to affect the pipeline of new shows. It's possible next year's Emmys won't have nearly the amount of great shows that we have this year. So we should sit back and enjoy and celebrate this great run of nominated shows right now because next year we might not have this many great shows to look back on. All right. That's NPR's TV critic Eric Deggins. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. UPS workers may be heading for a strike in early August. If they do walk out, it would be the biggest strike against a single employer in U.S. history. As NPR's Daniel Kay reports, this would mean millions of package delays for people and industries across the country. 
340,000 UPS workers are prepared to walk off the job if their union and the company don't agree on a new contract. Tommy Storch, a supply chain expert, says customers would probably feel the effects of a strike for weeks, even months after it ends. However long the strike happens, there will be you know, a much longer tail of just getting those millions of packages that largely weren't delivered that have been stacking up. And it's not just about your average packages like household goods. Major industries could also be disrupted. Here's Jason Miller, a professor of supply chain management at Michigan State University. Probably the scariest one for people is the medical supply chain or the healthcare supply chain. Manufacturers of medical devices and medical products tend to ship very extensively using parcel carriers. As UPS and its workers get closer to a strike, there's a big threat looming over both sides that wasn't there during the last UPS strike in 1997. The industry has changed a lot. Companies like FedEx and Amazon have expanded their delivery networks. There's just more competition than ever. Jeremy Tancredi leads the supply chain team at consulting firm West Monroe. That's the biggest concern UPS has is while one carrier can take on the majority of the volume, there might be enough carriers out there to spread it around and it could be a little more of a hit to them than it was in 97. UPS's main rivals, FedEx, the United States Postal Service, and Amazon, wouldn't be able to take on all of the millions of packages left behind. But FedEx, which is largely non-unionized, is still trying to take advantage of the threat of a strike. It's urging shippers to, quote, begin shipping with FedEx now, according to an internal company memo, before a strike even happens. Tancredi thinks that's a pretty smart move. So even if a strike doesn't happen, those customers have already switched over. UPS CEO Carol Tomei said in April that UPS has assigned executives to keep customers as the threat of a strike looms large. UPS and the Teamsters Union have less than three weeks to negotiate a new contract. The union says UPS isn't budging on a key sticking point, wages for part-time workers. UPS made billions of dollars in profit last year. This, the union says, means the company can afford to pay its workers more. And they're willing to strike if UPS doesn't give in. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Kay. With the ongoing war in Ukraine, this week's NATO summit in Lithuania has drawn global interest. Tomorrow, be sure to tune into NPR's Morning Edition to hear what the NATO Secretary General has to say. Just turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play your member station. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Sony Pictures Classics, presenting The Miracle Club, a new film starring Maggie Smith, Kathy Bates, and Laura Linney about four women who travel to Lourdes in search of a miracle. Starts Friday everywhere, only in theaters. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. The first album by Queen was released 50 years ago. It introduced the world to the singular voice of Freddie Mercury. Listen again tomorrow and turn it up. In the forecast, steamy out there right now. Temperatures should fall to about 70 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, clouds and sunshine moving in and out. Another hot day. Temperatures in the upper 80s. Then Friday should retreat to the low 80s with showers, the rumble of thunder in the afternoon. Could have some drenching rain as well. 90 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 459. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Director Ray, this is no time to mince words. The American people have lost faith in the FBI. FBI Director Christopher Wray was in the hot seat today on Capitol Hill. Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee turned up the temperature. It's Wednesday, July 12th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Hollywood actors are set to go on strike tomorrow over a new contract. They want more transparency to be paid residuals accordingly, and they also want control over how AI is used. And some expert advice to consider before you buy your child a smartphone or sign them up for social media. These stories from and the numbers from Wall Street, which are up. Also the forecast coming up, it's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky came to the NATO summit, hoping his country would be offered an invitation to join the alliance quickly. For Billionaires, Terry Schultz reports Zelensky left the two-day meeting disappointed but not empty-handed. A day ago, President Zelensky posted angry messages on social media, calling it absurd Ukraine would not be issued an invitation or even a timeline for an invitation to join NATO. He toned that down down on Wednesday, reportedly after complaints from President Biden and other leaders. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan explained the administration's reasoning on waiting to issue an invitation. The president said quite simply that he's not prepared to have Ukraine in NATO now because it would mean that the United States and NATO would be at war with Russia. Zelensky did receive long-term commitments from both NATO allies and the G7 for financial and military support. Zelensky called this a security victory for his country. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Vilnius. A massive cleanup effort is underway in New York's Hudson Valley, where a severe storm caused major flooding Sunday. John Campbell of member station WNYC has more. Residents and government officials are spending their days tallying up the damage from the destruction. It's worst in the area near the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, where eight inches of rain fell in a six-hour period. Brendan Casey is Orange County's Emergency Services Commissioner. We're moving in the right direction. It's just still going to take some time. Casey says crews have opened enough roads to get in and out of the area, though many still remain closed. Rail lines along the Hudson River also suffered extensive damage, but they've since reopened to Amtrak and commuter trains to New York City. For NPR News, I'm John Campbell. 
U.S. officials say state-backed Chinese hackers were able to foil Microsoft's cloud-based security and access unclassified U.S. government email systems. The extent of the hack was not immediately clear, but a person familiar with the investigation says U.S. military and intelligence agencies were among those affected, including the U.S. State Department. Inflation fell to its lowest level in more than two years last month. NPR's Scott Horsley has more. Consumer prices in June were up 3 percent from a year ago. That's the smallest annual increase since March of 2021. Prices rose just two-tenths of a percent between May and June. Rising rent and clothing prices last month were partially offset by falling prices for airfare, used cars, and furniture. Gasoline prices rose 1 percent last month but are down more than 26 percent from a year ago. Grocery prices were flat last month, while the cost of restaurant meals jumped four-tenths of a percent. Stripping out volatile food and energy prices, so-called core inflation was 4.8 percent for the year ending in June. That's still above the Federal Reserve's 2 percent target, so the central banks expected to raise interest rates again later this month. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 86 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey was in Western Mass today to assess flood damage from heavy rains. Several farms reported significant crop loss, and some roads and bridges remain closed. As Jill Kaufman reports, the governor stopped in Williamsburg, where the rain caused a serious flash flood. On Monday, several Williamsburg residents were evacuated from their homes, now damaged by the rising water. The governor spoke not far from an important bridge that remains closed because of potential damage. Her administration will do everything it can, she said, to assist people, including farmers whose lands were devastated, and she took a helicopter to check it out. To be able to see fields just still covered. People are suffering and and will suffer, you know, total wipeouts this year. Don Brantley of the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency said communities lead their own initial damage assessment. So we know of about 10 to 12 that declared local states of emergency. And damages will be added up over the next few weeks to see what federal and state funds may be needed and available. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. Red Cross volunteers from Massachusetts are helping to run two shelters in Vermont after the flooding there this week. Volunteers are working to provide people displaced by floods with food and disaster mental health care. Kelly Eisner is communications director for the Red Cross of Massachusetts. We also have teams on the ground that are doing damage assessment. Um, so they're going out into impacted neighborhoods and just seeing where the waterline is, just basically trying to make sure that we know of all the people that need help. Eisner says you can help by volunteering or by donating blood. She says the Red Cross was forced to cancel several area blood drives because of the flooding. Officials on Martha's Vineyard are planning to build affordable housing units for veterans. The town of Oak Bluffs is making some property available to the island's housing trust to build 12 one-bedroom apartments. Trust CEO Philippe Jordi says the goal is to give veterans a more affordable option to live on the vineyard. Essentially all properties that go on the market are being sold to either investment property owners, seasonal residents, or businesses that need housing for their own employees. So it makes it extremely difficult for people to be able to find opportunities, whether it's ownership or rental. Construction of the apartments is expected to be complete by late 2025. 90 degrees still in the Boston area, sunshine and clouds both. Thankfully, a breeze out there right now. Could have isolated rain and thunderstorms overnight tonight, right about 70. Some of the clouds should clear out by daybreak, then partial sunshine tomorrow. Chance of some showers could come close to 90 degrees again tomorrow. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. FBI Director Christopher Wray came under sharp and sustained criticism today from House Republicans. These are Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, among them Chairman Jim Jordan, who said the agency is weaponized against conservatives. American speech is censored. Parents are called terrorists. Catholics are called radicals. And I haven't even talked about the spying that took place of a presidential campaign, or the raiding of a former president's home. On the other hand, Democrat Hank Johnson of Georgia argued the whole hearing was a political stunt. Welcome to the legislative arm of the Trump re-election campaign. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson is here in the studio, and NPR Congressional Correspondent Deirdre Walsh is there on Capitol Hill. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Hey there. Deirdre, you start. This is Chris Ray's first appearance since Republicans took control of the House. And it sounds like the key lines of attack against the FBI were coming from Republicans. They were. And really the overall theme that Republicans were making was that the FBI has created what they say is a two-tiered system of justice and is unfairly targeting Republicans and GOP allies. One after another, Republicans on the committee complained about how the agency is handling investigations, such as the one dealing with classified documents, saying there's one standard for former President Trump and one for President Biden. Republicans also criticized how the FBI has handled probes into the president's son, Hunter Biden, saying that there's been retaliation against whistleblowers. We should also note that Ray faced some criticism from Democrats, too. Uh, for example, California Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren pressed Ray about what she thought was special treatment of Trump during the search at Mar-a-Lago. Okay, so criticism from all sides. Carrie, how's the FBI responding to that? You know, the criticism from Republicans is a little bit jarring because Chris Ray is a lifelong Republican. Yeah. He was a veteran of the George W. Bush Justice Department. He clerked for the conservative luminary Michael Ludig. He worked for Chris Christie. And Donald Trump appointed him as the FBI director. Here's what Chris Ray had to say late this afternoon after a number of lawmakers kept pressing him on these, this line of attack. The idea that I'm biased against conservatives seems somewhat insane to me, given my own personal background. Yeah, I guess the challenge here, Carrie, is that there are a, a bunch of politically sensitive investigations underway and the FBI is right in the thick of it. Right in the thick of it. You know, former President Donald Trump has been indicted on charges of willful retention of highly classified documents he kept in a bathroom, a storage room at his Florida resort and then allegedly obstructed the FBI investigation. This week, Donald Trump asked a judge to basically delay his trial until after the election because he's running again. There's another sensitive investigation that current president's son, Hunter Biden, recently reached a plea deal to plead guilty to two misdemeanors for failing to pay taxes. Republican lawmaker Matt Gates of Florida clashed with the FBI director about that today. Are you protecting the Bidens? Absolutely not. The FBI well, does not the, has well, no interest on. in protecting anyone You won't answer the question about whether or not that's a shakedown, and everybody knows why you won't answer it. Huh. Deirdre, was there any area where Democrats and Republicans seemed on the same page, sharing concerns about the FBI? There was actually one. Chairman Jordan, uh, as well as Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, she chairs the, the Progressive Caucus, 
blasted the FISA program. That's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. They both argued it infringes on Americans' privacy. This is the program set up to protect against national security threats. But lawmakers from both sides of the aisle have real concerns about the kinds of data it's collected. We should note that the program's up for reauthorization at the end of this year. But it's pretty clear after today's hearing it's going to need bipartisan reforms. I, I suppose it's worth backing up just for a second and, and reminding people of the context here, Carrie. All of this rhetoric, these verbal attacks against Chris Ray, against the FBI, they did not start today, right? This goes back, I mean, one date you could put on it would be the search of, of former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. Yeah, but one thing that was new, a little bit new that we heard today, Mary Louise, is that the FBI director says there have been real consequences. The FBI has had to stand up a special unit to look into threats against its agents and employees. There have been credible death threats against the FBI director himself. Uh, There have also been armed protests at an FBI field office in Phoenix and an armed man trying to break into the Bureau Cincinnati office. So this is very alarming for senior FBI and DOJ officials, for sure. Meanwhile, um, there is a push for uh, defunding the FBI. Deirdre, that's coming from Republicans. How real did that feel today? I mean, it's going to be an uphill battle in this divided Congress. But politically, it just shows how much the Republican Party has changed under the leadership of Donald Trump. For years, the party touted itself as the law and order party. And Republicans attacked Democrats for defunding the police. But now we see people like Jim Jordan pushing to zero out money for the FBI's program. There's one planned move for a new headquarters in the suburbs outside Washington, D.C., and Jordan in an upcoming spending bill is trying to get rid of that money. Uh, Carrie, I'm going to give you last word. I'm guessing Chris Ray is, is not behind these plans to defund the FBI. No, he says that would be bad for the 38,000 employees, but also maybe even more importantly for the communities that they serve as we face a scourge of gun and drug-fueled violence here across the country. That is NPR's Carrie Johnson and NPR's Deirdre Walsh over on Capitol Hill for us today. Thanks to you both. Happy to do it. Thanks, Mary Louise. One of the people lost on the migrant ship that sank off the coast of Greece last month was a young Egyptian man who'd hardly ever ventured outside his rural town before. But like many, he set off first to Libya, lured by smugglers promising to get him to Europe. NPR's Ayat Batraoui spoke with his brother and others to find out why so many are fleeing Egypt, a country that's suffering neither war nor chaos. Mahmoud Ibrahim's family got a call a few days after he'd vanished. He was in Libya and needed money. His brother Mohammed tells me over the phone, the family was stunned. The 28-year-old, with a wife and baby, lived in a poor rural town in northern Egypt's province of Sharia and had never even traveled as far as Cairo. Now, he owed Libyan smugglers $4,500 for a spot aboard a ship bound for Italy an astronomical figure for families in these parts of Egypt. Once he told us to pay, we sold some land that we had, collected money from here and there and borrowed. I mean, your brothers is telling you, pay for me or you know the rest. You know what will happen. The smugglers control where migrants sleep, how much food they get, and which ships people get on. The family paid a masked man in Egypt, part of a network of smugglers who promised safe crossings for desperate Egyptians looking for better lives. They find leads and even lure children on Facebook and chat groups. They promised him life is beautiful, easy. You'll never touch the water. 
just two or three days and you'll be in Italy and see a new world. It's delusion. Delusion. Mahmoud Ibrahim never got to see a new world. He's among hundreds of Egyptians, Pakistanis, Syrians, and Palestinians presumed dead after their overcrowded ship, the Adriana, sank last month near Greece, far from the Italian shores they dreamt to reach. Facebook pages are full of photos of missing Egyptians and families desperately seeking word on their loved ones. In one post, a man named Mohammed al goes live with his phone camera as he searches helplessly in Greece for his brother and cousins. Through a fence and metal railings, he yells out to Egyptian survivors of the Adriana for the names of survivors from his hometown. He then reads out the names of the six survivors from his village. Egyptians from poor towns have long crossed the sea to Europe, but those numbers soared dramatically last year. The International Organization for Migration counted nearly 22,000 Egyptian migrants arriving to Europe mostly by sea last year, topping every other nationality, including from war-torn countries like Afghanistan and Syria. Rahab Rida says she knows why her husband, Mustafa Adel Sayyid, left Egypt and risked his life for a shot at Europe. The cost of living is going up every day, not every month or every year, no, every day. There are new prices for food, clothes, for living, so our income isn't enough. And this is the case for everyone, not just for us. Millions of poor Egyptians rely on government subsidies and handouts to survive. But Egypt's economy has suffered major blows over the past year. The price of food has skyrocketed since early 2022, correlating with the spike in Egyptian migrants arriving to Europe. Rida says her husband's job as a tailor in Sharia wasn't enough to keep up with the cost of their three children. He wanted to do something for his kids. He would say, I am 35 years old and my kids are young and I can't do anything for them. Out of an estimated 750 people on the Adriana, only 104 survived, including 43 Egyptians. Rida's husband is among the survivors, but he's now detained in Greece, one of nine Egyptians accused of being part of the smuggling network. Rida says her husband is innocent and that the real smugglers don't risk their lives on these boats. After we hang up, she sends me a voice note with one more thing. Her cousin was also on the ship, and they don't know what happened to him. She asks if I can find out if he's dead, or maybe alive in a hospital or camp somewhere. She sends me his photo. In it, Saeed Muhammad's black hair is trimmed with a fade. The 23-year-old is wearing white sneakers, black jeans, and a fitted white t-shirt with the words Louis Vuitton stitched across the front. I check the list of Egyptian survivors. His name isn't there. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Dubai. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Across the board gains on Wall Street today. The Dow picked up a quarter of a percent. S&P and Nasdaq closed at their highest level since April of last year. S&P gained three quarters of a percent. The Nasdaq rose more than a full percent. Marketplace has all the news from this day in business coming up at 630. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Listen to WBR anywhere you're heading this summer. Just tap to listen live and catch up on everything that's happening in the news. Download or update the WBUR app now. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. And the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. TheMusicEmporium.com. Nine dogs, 11 cats, and a chinchilla are now on a plane that took off from Vermont and is headed for Massachusetts. The MSPCA is evacuating them from Vermont, which is recovering from torrential rain and flooding. The animals have been living at a shelter. The organization's director of adoption, Mike Kiley, says they're being brought to Massachusetts in order to make room in the shelters for other animals whose owners currently can't take care of them because of the flooding. The rescued animals will be brought to MSPCA adoption centers across the Bay State, and will soon be ready for their new homes. In the forecast, steamy out there still. Temperatures falling to about 70 overnight tonight. Tomorrow, clouds and sunshine both. Another hot day. Highs in the upper 80s. 89 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Mattress Firm. Whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. Fox News is facing what could be another blockbuster lawsuit. A Trump supporter who was in Washington on January 6, 2021, says the network spread falsehoods about him and his role in the violence at the U.S. Capitol that day. His legal complaint notes, quote, lies have consequences, reminiscent of another lawsuit Fox settled just a few months ago. For details, we're joined by NPR media correspondent David Falkenflick. Hi, David. Hey, Adrian. David, start by telling us about this man who's suing Fox. Uh, who is he? His name's Ray Epps. He's a former Marine. He's retired until recently. He ran a wedding venue with his wife at their home in Arizona. Uh, he attended uh, this protest with his son. And to be clear, this is a Trump supporter, as he said, a Fox News watcher. His lawsuit says that... Uh, you know, he what he heard about both the 2020 election being stolen from Trump helped propel him to come to Washington on January 6th. But, you know, he then said Fox essentially turned on him, that that Tucker Carlson said things about his show that spread far and wide and led a lot of right wing extremists to threaten him and his wife. They had to move. What are some of the specific allegations in his lawsuit? What's his basis here? Well, there are two kind of central claims that he 
presents Tucker Carlson having made on the air through his own statements and through the guests that he had on to amplify. And these were claims that uh, Epps was at the core of the instigation of violence at the January 6th uh, siege of the U.S. Capitol in 2021, starting the night before, and that somehow Epps was an undercover either uh, FBI asset or working with some other federal agency to do this, that there was some sort of false flag operation to discredit those Trump supporters who felt that there had been fraud. I want to be clear, there's no hard evidence to support that. Uh, Epson's wife said they feared for their lives. They sold their home. They essentially lost their business because they didn't get anything for it. It was at their house. Uh, and I will say that, that, you know, they say it ruined their lives. Uh, and how is uh, Fox responding to these claims? Well, so far, uh, you know, I've reached out both to people at Fox News. Uh, I also reached out to Tucker Carlson, who, to be clear, has not been named as a defendant in this lawsuit. I haven't gotten a response from either. Well, David, uh, we can't talk about this lawsuit in a vacuum. Uh, Fox just settled a big defamation suit earlier this year. Um, so what does this all say about, about the network and its legal problems? Well, it stems back to a fateful decision made in late fall of 2020 uh, to embrace essentially a big lie. And if you go back to election night 2020, you and I have talked about this before mm -hmm. on this very show, Fox was the first television network to project that Democrat Joe Biden would win the key state of Arizona, thus putting seemingly the election out of reach for then-President Donald Trump. Trump goes out and says he's been defrauded, and you see a lot of his supporters, many of whom had been loyal Fox News viewers, uh, be outraged by what Fox did and be outraged by, by the belief that somehow he had been cheated. Again, something disproved repeatedly. Well, they then embraced the idea that he's been uh, cheated of it. And in the process, uh, you've saw Dominion uh, Voting Systems, a major election tech company, sue Fox News. They settled their defamation suit for over three quarters of a billion dollars. And there's a line in Epps' suit that echoes it. He says, behind the scenes, away from the red light of rolling cameras, executives, producers, and on-air personalities rejected as preposterous and crazy the claims that Fox was feeding its viewers. In front of the camera, Fox continued with the lies. Mm -hmm. There's another lawsuit uh, from another voting tech company called Smartmatic. There are other shareholder suits about this. This is one of a panoply of suits besetting Fox News because of the decision they made in late 2020. NPR media correspondent David Falkenflick. Thanks, David. You bet. Here's a question many parents are struggling with or have struggled with. Should I give my kid a smartphone? Maybe they're putting on the pressure. They need one for school or for safety. And all their friends already have one, like all of them. But before you place the order, consider the experiences of parents who have said yes. For our series Living Better, NPR's Michaeline Duclef reports. For the past four years, Emily Churkin has been working with parents on the other side of this situation. They've given their kid a smartphone, and now they're struggling with it. Churkin is a former middle school teacher, now a screen consultant. She says these parents have one thing in common. Talk to hundreds of parents, and they not one has ever said to me, I wish I gave my kid a phone earlier, or I wish I'd given them social media access sooner. Never. It's always the opposite. They wish they had waited. And I hear that. I hear, I wish I knew then what I, I know now. The parents wish they knew two repercussions of giving a child a phone. Number one, it means dealing with a whole new set of possible dangers. I think parents feel that by providing their child with devices, they are somehow keeping their child safe. And it's actually very backwards thinking. Our fears are very misplaced. That the world 
online for some kids may actually be riskier than the world in real life. In a recent survey of about 1,000 teen girls, about half who use TikTok, Instagram, or Snapchat say they've been contacted by a stranger who made them feel uncomfortable. And more than 10% said they see harmful or disturbing content related to suicide or disordered eating on a daily basis. And then there's porn. Churkin says before giving your kid any app, set up an account for them first. Then I tell parents, use that account for yourself for a week or more. Then decide, is this the product or an app that I want my kid using? She tried this herself with Snapchat. I pretended to be 15. I didn't even like anything. I just went to the Discover feed where it like pushes you content based on your age usually. Immediately, she saw sexualized and vulgar content. Within seconds. Wait, with the count that was supposed to be the 15-year-old using it? Oh, yeah. or it's insanity. Snapchat's parent company, Snap, said in an email that it understands concerns about the appropriateness of some content and is working to offer teens a more age-appropriate experience. But scientists have found that kids are drawn to this content and to these apps like magnets. And this brings us to the second thing to know. Before you hand over a phone, expect a constant struggle. It's going to be very hard to get your child to do other things, like read a book or go play outside with friends. Why? The phone and its apps trigger a molecule inside the brain that makes you crave them, almost like a drug. And Noelle Semaha is a neuroscientist at the University of Montreal. She says children's brains haven't developed enough to handle this magnetic pull. It's almost as if you have like the perfect storm. You have these games and the social media and brains that are just not yet ready to have that level of self-control. She says even some adults can't regulate their phone use. I consider myself a, as having a lot of self-control, but I'll be like in the, in the metro coming into work and automatically I'll take my phone out of my pocket. I'm like, why am I doing that? In other words, how can you expect an 11-year-old to handle this if some adults struggle with it? NPR contacted TikTok, Instagram's Meta, along with Snap. All the companies declined interviews, but said they have invested in tools to help parents customize and monitor a child's account. Still, even with parental controls, screen consultant Emily Churkin says it's a lot of work to manage. So she gives parents the same advice over and over again. As long as you possibly can, delay. Delay all of it. And if you just have to order a phone, make it a dumb phone where the child can just text and call. Michaeline Duclef, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's still pretty hot out there, 90 degrees in the Boston area. Could have some isolated rain and thunderstorms tonight, right about 70. Some of the clouds clear out by tomorrow daybreak. Partly sunny skies tomorrow. The chance of some showers could come close to 90 degrees once again. Then for Friday, dipping to the low 80s, clouds, showers, chance of some heavy rain. The weekend is looking mixed as of now, with at least some sunshine on Saturday, clouds and showers on Sunday. New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft, former Pats GM Bucko Kilroy, and Patriots Hall of Fame receiver Stanley Morgan have been named semifinalists for the NHL Hall of Fame. 90 degrees in the Boston area, it's 530.
The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Vermont, volunteers turned out in droves today, many with snow shovels to help communities clear mud and debris from this week's epic floods after torrential storms dumped a record two months of rain on the region in just two days. Governor Phil Scott toured the area with FEMA's administrator, saying the total cost of damage to homes and businesses and roadways could be substantial. The water has drained off most streets in the state capital of Montpelier downtown, but Vermont Public Safety Commissioner Jennifer Morrison says the situation remains difficult because more thunderstorms are on the way. I will continue to remind Vermonters that further precipitation is forecasted for Thursday and Friday that could bring significant additional rainfall. At least three terrorists and four Pakistan army soldiers were killed in an attack on a military base in southern Pakistan. NPR's Abdul Sattar has more from Islamabad. In a movie titled 2000 Mules, True the Vote argued without evidence that unspecified liberal groups conspired to stuff drop boxes in swing states with fraudulent ballots to steal the 2020 election from Donald Trump. Law enforcement has debunked those claims, but True the Vote filed a complaint with the election board, accusing groups of paying $10 per absentee ballot submitted by Dropbox. The board, which is dominated by Republican appointees, has issued subpoenas for documents or sources to prove the claims, but True the Vote has not produced any. The election board has already dismissed other cases highlighted by 2,000 mules. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street today after a new report showed consumer inflation cooled more last month. The Dow up a quarter of a percent. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is preparing the region for more rain this week. The agency operates more than a dozen dams across the area to help mitigate floods along local waterways. Scott Oconee is the Corps' deputy district engineer for New England. He says that this week's rain had the dams about kept about uh, 60 billion gallons of water from flooding into the Connecticut River. So even though the the Connecticut River and some of the tributaries to the Connecticut River were high, they would have been significantly higher. And as a matter of fact, in Holyoke, our operation of our dams was able to reduce the peak stages by somewhere between six and six and a half feet. The Army Corps is now releasing some water to make room for additional rainfall expected later this week. On a hot day like today, you might be tempted to set the AC way low. Worcester Polytechnic Institute researcher Shi Chao Lu says resist the temptation. He says air conditioners pump out cool air at only one temperature, so if you set your air conditioner to a lower temperature, it's going to take a lot longer to make your house feel any cooler. It's like a light. You turn on the light, turn off the light, you cannot dim it. You cannot, you know, adjust it. You just on off. 
Lou says if you turn your AC way down, it'll add wear and tear to your system, too, and eat up energy. He says instead, use fans to help the AC cool more efficiently. People traveling through Logan Airport during the Sumner Tunnel closure have been warned by state officials to expect congestion when they head to and from the airport. The tunnel connects East Boston and the airport to downtown. WBR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez says some travelers have been spared traffic headaches. Grayson Johnson of Texas picked up a rental car at Logan just three days after the Sumner closed. He says the car rental company sent him an email before the trip warning of potential traffic delays, but he didn't experience any. No, not really. It took us 15 minutes to get into town leaving the airport. Johnson says it was also relatively smooth coming back to the airport this morning. Keith Morin and his wife are visiting from Alaska. They picked up a rental car at the airport for a trip to Western Mass. He looked at Google Maps before heading west on the Mass Pike. There's some red going back across the tunnel. And then I get get out of Boston. The congestion was predicted to add six minutes to his travel time. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. White Stadium in Boston's Franklin Park could soon be in for a major upgrade. A group of investors has proposed using $30 million to upgrade the facility used for Boston public school sports. The stadium would also be home to a new professional women's soccer team. The proposal was the only one the city received after a request earlier this year for proposals. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu plans to hold a community meeting tomorrow to get feedback on the plan. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh Food Generation Restaurant, providing drop-off corporate and community catering of farm-to-plate Caribbean-American fare, freshfoodgeneration.com, and Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. Clouds and the chance of a wind-driven rain overnight tonight, about 71 for a low. Tomorrow, partly sunny, still hot, close to 90 degrees. Could have some showers in the second half of the day tomorrow. This is WBUR. It's 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. SAG-AFTRA, that is the union representing thousands of actors, including some of Hollywood's biggest stars, and it is set to go on strike tomorrow. They're in disagreement with major studios over their contract. So if today's last-minute mediation does not work, this could be the latest strike to shake up Hollywood. Kim Masters is editor-at-large for The Hollywood Reporter and host of The Business at our member station, KCRW. Hey, Kim. Hello. I need to deliver a quick note here for transparency, which is many of us, including me at NPR, are members of SAG-AFTRA, but we broadcast journalists are under a different contract than film and TV, all the actors, so we would not be expected to strike. And I, too, am SAG-AFTRA. Transparency Mm -hmm. all around. Um, So let me start with, I mean, we are hours away from this deadline. Sketch out briefly, what are the big sticking points holding up a deal? Well, this is a a moment in both the Writers Guild, which has been on strike, and the Screen Actors Guild, 
So there are huge battles for both guilds. I'd say right now, two of the biggest, of course, they want more money and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But there is the question of AI and how it will be used. And there is also the question of transparency. Actors are used to being paid in success, paid more, residuals. Streamers aren't doing that. They aren't telling people much about how well their shows did or didn't do. And so they want more transparency to be paid residuals accordingly. And they also want control over how AI is used. So that sounds somewhat, not exactly the same, but somewhat similar to what the writers are striking about, right? Yes. Both guilds are definitely concerned about AI and transparency. And money. Right. Okay. So speaking of money, studios are rich. They might be able to afford to hold out for a while. Um, obviously, some of these actors in question are very rich, but but a lot of union members are not high earners, people working smaller parts. Um, do you think actors in the union are ready to hold out if they can't reach a deal? Well, let me just stop you on the studios are rich. The studios are in crisis. Uh, this is a moment that has been long coming, a time of transition. Streaming has really hurt them. They haven't figured out how to make money on it, except Netflix, finally, after a lot of investment. Okay. So the studios are laying people off by the thousands. And what you have here, as much as I hate to use the tired phrase, the perfect storm, is the studios trying to grapple with a new reality. The old model of making money has been pretty much destroyed. And meanwhile, the writers and actors saying, how do we hang on to our part of the pie here? If you have, if you were to have actors on strike, when writers are already on strike, what could the likely impact on viewers be? I mean, with the writers, we've been told there's there's a few months of padding. Things were already shot. Um, so we're not going to feel the effects for a while. What about if, if actors strike? The writers are having an impact. They've halted production on things. So that's already started, you know. And I don't know that it's good for the studios to be sitting there with nothing in production. They're trying to lure people back to theaters now. And they're trying to get people subscribed to the streamers. So all of this is creating a fraudder than usual, hot mess. It's almost a moment of existential crisis for this industry. And it sounds hyperbolic, but it feels very, very grim right now. You know, sag after has said they will talk with a federal mediator at midnight if that is uh, not successful. And we are not too, uh, certainly I'm not feeling like this is going to work. So they may push it again and extend the deadline, but it feels like everybody is at such a pitch that they are kind of ready to walk out. Kim Masters, editor-at-large of The Hollywood Reporter. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Are we living in a new epic in Earth's geologic history? A few years ago, a group of scientists proposed that, yes, that humans have so altered the planet that we have left the Holocene epoch and are now living in the Anthropocene epoch. Anthro for humans. To make this case, they had to find a spot on Earth that best preserved the evidence of the indelible impact that humans have had on the planet. And now they say they found it. It's a small lake outside Toronto. Francine McCarthy, a professor of Earth Sciences at Brock University in Ontario, led the research group. Welcome. Happy to be here. So first, what does this lake, Crawford Lake, tell you about humans' influence on the planet? So it is the sediments of that small lake that record things like the atmospheric pollution, particularly from the combustion of fossil fuels. It records the testing of nuclear weapons during the Cold War. It records 
everything that went on on a yearly basis, each layer is distinct from the one that was deposited the year before, like tree rings. So we can actually sample individual years of sediment and measure all sorts of aspects of that sediment to reconstruct what the world was like in 1945 or 1950 or 1955. And we know that dramatic changes happened in the early 1950s, not just at Crawford Lake, all around the world, but recorded their best. You hinted at this, but uh, when do you and your team consider this new epoch to have begun, the Anthropocene epoch? Literally, the year 1950 is what we've suggested. Well, not all scientists are in favor of uh, establishing this new geologic epoch. Some point to the fact that other epochs uh, haven't been named until thousands of years after they occurred. Is the last several decades enough, you think, to constitute an epoch when others have been defined by millennia by such by much longer time spans? That's certainly a question that we've gotten. I think what we respond is it's not how long the planet has been different that should matter to put a line on the time scale and, and identify a new epoch. It is how different the environment of the planet is from what it used to be. Lines on the geologic time scale are there to illustrate when massive things happen, like when the asteroid hit the planet and the dinosaurs and a bunch of other things became extinct. That's a pretty obvious big thing. It deserves a really big line on the on the time scale, and that includes an era as well as the epoch and period and so on. So it, it, is, it is what happened then. It's not that it was 66 million years ago that matters. It's that massive changes happened to the entire planet. So what happens next, Professor? What has to happen to make this new epoch official? We're going to write up our proposal that's going to include data from Crawford Lake and a few of the other sites that we studied along the way to make that strong case that the Earth system has shifted to the point that a new line on the time scale needs to be drawn. It's not our responsibility to do that, so we'll submit the proposal to the group that has that responsibility. They will assess the evidence and they will make a decision, yes or no. But either way, whether there is a new line on the time scale or not, opening up this conversation the way our activity has done in the last five years, looking for evidence of this major shift, I think that is the most important thing that we've done to get people talking about this. Well, I've been speaking with Francine McCarthy of Brock University in Ontario, Canada. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Trash, especially our plastic trash, it's everywhere. And scientists have now released what they say is the most comprehensive catalog to date of just how much plastic and what kinds of it are smothering the world's coral reefs. Their findings also suggest how to help rescue this vulnerable ecosystem. Here's science reporter Ari Daniel. 
Nine years ago, marine biologist Hudson Pinheiro, now at the University of Sao Paulo, was diving in the Philippines to document a cornucopia of fish species. The place that is considered the center of the center of marine biodiversity, the goal was to explore deep reefs looking for new species. He saw all kinds of fish down there, but he also saw loads of garbage. A high diversity of trash, like uh, bottles, like plastic bags, plastic cups. Plastic trash is a real problem for corals. Plastic can suffocate and kill the corals, sponges, and other invertebrates. One study found that the likelihood of coral disease surged 20 times once a reef was covered in plastic. Now, Pinheiro suspected the problem wasn't unique to the Philippines, so he reached out to more than a dozen colleagues, and they surveyed 84 reefs across the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans, which involved long dives. Like up to five, six hours, you know? And so we go down there, and we count everything. In other locations, the team relied on video recorders mounted to submersibles and remotely operated vehicles. And after analyzing all the tallies and footage, the result was clear. Plastic trash covers more than 90% of the corals that the researchers surveyed, including some of the most remote and pristine reefs. It's sad. Uh, it's super, super sad. The study is published in the journal Nature. We're not only talking about plastic bags and bottles. The lion's share was plastic fishing debris, lines and nets that entangle the reefs and continue to kill other marine animals. And researchers were surprised to discover more of it in deeper reefs than shallower ones. Most of the fish are already overfished in the shallow water, so the fisherman is moving to deeper reefs to catch the same amount that they used to catch before. And Pinheiro says that low- and middle-income countries like Brazil, the Philippines, and the East African nation of Comoros tend to have more of this plastic pollution. That's because they have fewer resources to invest in waste management and better fishing gear. How do all countries help with this problem? We all need to do something. Ecologist Chelsea Rockman studies plastic pollution at the University of Toronto. She wasn't involved in the research. We need to be thinking about how higher-income countries can help lower-income countries pay for their solutions. Solutions like cutting back on single-use plastics, improving trash collection, and working with communities dependent on plastic fishing gear, says lead author Hudson Pinheiro. How can we change the ropes, the, the nets? So we need to find a biodegradable material, you know, like made from fibers, as we used to do before. So that all this plastic stops finding its way to the reefs, and perhaps what's already there can get cleaned up. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. President Biden is framing his big climate legislation as a jobs bill, and that could disappoint young voters whose top issue is climate change. The Biden strategy tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Start your day right here. 
In sports, summer basketball tonight. At 10 o'clock tonight, the Celts take on the Los Angeles Lakers in Las Vegas in NBA Summer League action. Also, the New England Revolution host Atlanta United FC tonight in Foxborough. The Revs are third in Major League Soccer's Eastern Division. In the forecast overnight tonight, could have some thunderstorms now and then, about 70 degrees. Tomorrow, clouds and sunshine moving in and out. Another hot day. Temperatures in the upper 80s. It's 549. The future of mining the metals we all need may not be in mountains or deep underground. It might be underwater. We've identified 1.6 billion tons of these polymetallic nodules, like the one in my hand. They literally lie on the ocean floor. That's enough to build around 280 million EV batteries. The controversial future of deep ocean mining. That's on point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. The National Endowment for the Arts has announced a new class of jazz masters. As NPR's Netta Ulubi reports, this title is one of the highest honors in jazz. Terrence Blanchard is now officially a jazz master. This honor comes as no surprise to anyone who's followed the career of one of the most formidable musicians working now in any genre. The leading trumpeter has also scored dozens of movies. Two years ago, Blanchard's opera, Fire Shot Up in My Bones, became the first by a black composer to be staged by the Metropolitan Opera. He told NPR in 2019 that for him, jazz is about narrative. When you start to improvise, you're trying to tell a story. So you're going to have a beginning, middle, and an end to what it is that you do, even though you're improvising. Improvising is not the preferred term of art for another new jazz master. I call it composing. Gary Bartz started playing saxophone when he was six years old. Since then, he's recorded more than 40 solo albums and played on more than 200. On the website of Oberlin College, where he's taught for nearly a quarter century, he explains what he calls informal composition. Each chorus should be greater than the melody that you chose to do that on. And that's composition. That's not improvising. Improvising, you just play anything. Another educator, William Jenkins, is a new jazz master. He's a national figure in jazz broadcasting and scholarship and has led numerous jazz festivals. And jazz master Amina Claudia Myers is a former elementary school teacher. Born in Arkansas, she moved to New York City in the 1970s and wrote compositions based partly on the gospel she heard as a child. The new NEA Jazz Masters will be recognized next year in a ceremony at Washington, D.C.'s Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. Netta Ulibi, NPR News. Pierre Quinders is a Congolese-Canadian singer, songwriter, and DJ. His album, José Louis and the Paradox of Love, made a splash last year and won Canada's prestigious Polaris Prize. Now he is out with a deluxe version with three new tracks, and Pierre's Kira Wakim has more. Pierre Quinders' love for music was born in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where he spent the first 12 years of his life, surrounded by song and celebration. There's always a guitar around, and there's always people singing, and my mom and auntie dancing around. My moves, are, all the dance that I, I like to do uh, comes from uh, my mom's side, definitely. In 2001, Quinders and his mom left Congo for Montreal, Quebec, where he would eventually join the Africa and Chietu Choir a local African church choir that connected him to the community he had left behind. Oh, 
and where he would find his voice. That moment when I joined the choir, that was kind of the beginning of me realizing that that was the path for me, you know. Almost two decades later, that same choir helps Quenders close out his intensely personal album, José Louis and the Paradox of Love, on a track titled Church. This is Quenders' fourth studio album. Last year, it earned him the Polaris Music Prize for Best Canadian Album. That's a title previously bestowed on artists like Buffy St. Marie, The Arcade Fire, and Kate Renata. But who exactly is José Louis? Well, José Louis, it's me. It's actually my birth name. Uh, I was born José Louis Modabi Ndongeya Kambila Lubangu Lubangu, which is a very long name. <laughs> Quenders, whose stage name is an homage to his maternal grandfather, says this album is an exploration of love in all its forms, romantic, familial, and platonic. But it's also a journey towards self-love and acceptance. The story that I'm telling here in this album is basically the story of that young kid who left Congo at a very young age. I was 15, 16 years old. And then I arrived here, I still have this idea of what life is supposed to be and everything else that everybody is telling me around me. And especially all that was connected with love, you know. That's why the album is called José Louis and the Paradox of Love, because you ask yourself so many questions about who you are, about who you love, and hopefully people could find some answer. I believe I'm finding some answer after that little therapy that I did with this album, but, you know, I'm getting there slowly. One of the things Quenders has been able to find answers about? His own sexuality. I grew up a straight man, you know, I have to say. I've only came out to my mom, I think it was uh, during the pandemic, and that was through the process of this album because I wanted to tell the story. And there is a song in this album called Your Dream. This is your dream, your own dream. This is your dream, your own It's basically a letter to my mom reassuring her that everything will be okay, but also thanking her because she made sure that everything is okay. She thinks I'm going crazy and said, how could you do this to me? Maybe somebody so keep a seal and keep. Put in my head, Bonnie, found it for myself. Yeah, put in my head, Bonnie, this is who I am. Love is all we got, love is all I got. I'm a Scorpio perfecto. Bonnie was a Bonnie. That's one of uh, the confusions that I had because there was a side of me that was hidden and I couldn't really talk about it. And I've talked about it a little bit in my previous projects, but not really deeply like that. And I really wanted to go deep into my soul and share my deepest thoughts, my deepest fears, and also my most beautiful joy. And he expresses those emotions in a mix of languages. French and English, Chiluba and Lingala. Don't get close, don't get close, don't get close. 
This seamless flow from one language to another and back again has become something of a musical signature for him. When I started singing, it just felt right for me to, uh, to kind of uh, move in between those languages. And it's also something very common in the Congolese choir because there are like over 250 tribes in Congo. So imagine how many languages there is. So whenever you go to church, we could start the mass in French with one song in French, and then the second song could be in Lingala, and then the other song uh, could be in Chiluba, and then we go in Swahili or Kikongo, and then the song that mix all of those. Quender says he appreciates the way African music and African diasporic sound have been embraced in Canada and beyond. But for him, there's a lot more room for growth. I just went to the Juno this year and I saw for the first time an artist of Indian origin singing and performing for the first time at the Juno. That's beautiful. I want more of that. I want also African diasporic kids also to be able to stand on that stage and sing, you know, and be like, we did this. You know, this is also part of Canadian history. Kira Joaquim, NPR News. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, with a variety of British mysteries available for streaming, including all seasons of Luther, Father Brown, and Silent Witness. Available during Mystery Month at BritBox.com NPR. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. At UMA.com NPR. From DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is WBUR. Overcast overnight tonight, the chance of wind-driven rain, about 71 for a low. Tomorrow, partly sunny and still hot, close to 90 again. Maybe some showers for the second half of the day. Want some new summer reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter in the month of July, and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at WBUR.org slash Beach Books. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We are not yet at the promised land where the Federal Reserve can say mission accomplished, but we are surely on the journey. Inflation fell last month to its lowest level in more than two years, but experts say there's still work to be done. It's Wednesday, July 12th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, fruit and candy-flavored vapes cannot be sold legally in the U.S., yet they're readily available. The reason is complex and has parents concerned. And tonight on Marketplace, the markets have seen huge growth in the past 30 years, partly because of low interest rates and low corporate taxes, but both could change. With respect to taxes, I think now, because of what you've seen from a fiscal spending standpoint, and because a lot of places now have aging populations, 
you're going to need to fund government spending in some way. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says he thinks Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is satisfied with pledges of long-term security assistance made by the U.S. and other G7 nations. That's despite the fact a path to NATO membership remains unclear. Zelensky had criticized NATO for not having a timeline for Ukraine to join the military alliance, but Biden says the coalition's commitment hasn't weakened. We pursued intense diplomacy with Russia, seeking to avert this terrible war. And when Russia bombs began to fall, we did not hesitate to act. We rallied the world to support the brave people of Ukraine as they defend their liberty and their sovereignty with incredible dignity. Biden spent about an hour talking with the Ukrainian president after the summit. Some NATO members, including the U.S., feel Ukraine cannot join the alliance until Russia ends its war. Otherwise, NATO would be drawn into the conflict. FBI Director Christopher Wray faced some of his harshest critics on Capitol Hill today. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee bombarded Wray with questions on an array of issues, including the investigation and indictment of former President Trump. Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan pointed the finger at Wray, accusing him of politicizing the Bureau and unfairly targeting conservatives. American speech is censored. Parents are called terrorists. Catholics are called radicals. And I haven't even talked about the spying that took place of a presidential campaign, or the raiding of a former president's home. During his testimony, Christopher Wray hit back at those claims, calling them somewhat insane. Today's FBI leaders reflect the best of our organization, an organization that is made up of 38,000 men and women who are patriots, professionals, and dedicated public servants. Wray, a registered Republican, was nominated by then-President Trump. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Contract negotiations between the United Auto Workers Union and the big three car makers kicked off today, but there was no traditional opening handshake. NPR's Camila Dominowski reports the new president of the UAW has been striking a militant tone. The UAW held direct elections for the first time this year, part of an effort to recover from a major corruption scandal. And members shook things up by electing Sean Fain, who promised a more aggressive negotiating stance. The customary opening handshake that did didn't happen was symbolic. Here's Fain on Facebook Live. I'm not shaking hands with any CEOs until they do right by our members and we fix the broken status quo at the big three. Fain says the union is willing to strike with priorities including better pay for newer hires and more job protections tied to the transition to electric vehicles. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. Stocks moved higher for a second straight session. The Dow up 86 points today. The Nasdaq rose 158 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Health experts are calling for more efforts to address racial disparities and complications during pregnancy. A new report from the Massachusetts Department of Public Health shows serious health problems among pregnant patients nearly doubled in a decade, and black patients suffered the highest rates. WBR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey has more. Experts say expanding access to doulas and telehealth are among the strategies that could help pregnant patients of color. Ndidi Amaka Amuta Anukaga is a professor at Tufts University School of Medicine. She says healthcare providers need to listen better to Black patients. Patients will tell you the symptoms that they're having. They will tell you what they are going through. And so for providers to not prioritize those symptoms or for providers to not 
illuminate those are missed opportunities and those are things that can be done now. She says when patients feel dismissed, their health problems may go untreated, leading to dangerous complications. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. The head of Boston's NAACP chapter says state leaders should do more to ensure that local colleges and universities maintain diverse student populations. Last month, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled to end affirmative action and the use of race-conscious admissions. On Radio Boston today on WBUR, local NAACP President Tanisha Sullivan said the governor and the state education secretary should use public policy to see that college admissions remain equitable really taking the lead when it comes to, to to reshaping our policy, our education policy, to help ensure that um, students from all backgrounds continue to have access to our colleges and universities here in Massachusetts. Earlier this month, Boston-based Lawyers for Civil Rights filed a complaint against Harvard challenging the university's use of legacy admissions. Two professors fired from the Benjamin Franklin Cummings Institute of Technology in Boston are suing the school. The Boston Business Journal reports the professors are both white and in their 60s. They claim the school made efforts to turn the faculty into, quote, a roster of young black men. The school's student body is one-third black. The professors say the school pointed to their desire to continue teaching remotely for their firings. The northern lights may be visible in parts of Massachusetts tonight and tomorrow. We are able to see them because of what's called a geomagnetic storm. Offer Cohen is physics professor at UMass Lowell. He says the ideal time to see the lights is between 10 tonight and 2 tomorrow morning. The main point is to look for a dark location outside of the city and hope to have a clear sky that we can see it. Cohen says to look toward the horizon for the lights. You might also need to scan the sky to see them. The aurora may be visible this week as far south as Maryland. An air quality alert is in effect for southern Bristol and Plymouth counties and on the Cape and Islands. It'll be in place until 11 tonight. The state expects air quality to be unhealthful for people with heart or lung disease, also older adults, teenagers, and children. In the forecast, clouds are on tonight. Some rain likely. Temperatures drop to about 70. Tomorrow, clouds and sunshine, both another hot day in the upper 80s. Friday should retreat to the low 80s with showers and the rumble of thunder in the afternoon. It's 89 degrees now in Boston at 608. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. Inflation, which has been bruising Americans for more than two years, is finally losing some of its punch. Today, we learned that the cost of living in June was up just 3% from a year ago. That is the smallest annual increase since March of 2021. And what's more, forecasters say inflation could fall even more in the months to come. NPR Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott. Hi, Adrian. Sounds like some welcome news, Scott. What is behind this drop in inflation? Well, one big factor is gasoline. Uh, Remember, a year ago, gas prices hit an all-time high after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Since then, gas prices have tumbled more than 26 percent. That's a big relief for people like Kate Blacker. She lives in Jersey City, New Jersey, and commutes about an hour each way to her job at a community college. I'm a lot less worried now than I was six months ago, eight months ago, when the prices were rising so rapidly, and I didn't know when that was going to cool down. 
Inflation has cooled dramatically since hitting a four-decade high a year ago. It's now fallen for 12 consecutive months. Uh, Last month, we saw falling prices for airfares and for used cars. Uh, Grocery prices also leveled off in June, although the price of restaurant meals continues to climb. And why do forecasters think that inflation is going to keep falling uh, over the next several months? Well, some price reductions are already in the pipeline. Uh, Take rent, for example. People who are signing new leases on apartments this summer are seeing smaller rent increases than they did a year ago. Uh, That takes time to make its way into the government's inflation measure, but the writing is on the wall. Uh, Likewise, the price that dealers pay for used cars at auction has been coming down for several months now, so we should see further savings uh, on used car lots. Economist Lael Brainerd, uh, who used to serve on the Federal Reserve Board and is now at the White House, also noted today that some corporations have kind of taken advantage of inflation to pad their profit margins. Uh, If their own costs went up maybe 5 percent, they raised their prices 10 percent. Brainerd told the Economic Club of New York today she expects those extra profits will get wrung out over time. It'll be important for corporations to continue to bring their markups down after having raised them to unusually elevated levels over the past two years, which would help in reducing inflation. Brainerd says chipping away at those extra profits depends on competition and uh, people like you and me, Adrian, getting more price sensitive. I know, I I certainly have. Uh, But are are customers across the country becoming more careful shoppers? Some of them certainly are. Two years of high inflation has left a mark on the way people spend money, uh, and some of those changes could be lasting. Uh, For example, Kate Blacker says she and her partner are much more thoughtful now about their food purchases than they used to be. We didn't really look so much at the grocery prices before. It was more like, oh, let's look up a recipe and just get whatever it is that we need for that recipe. And we also used to eat out a lot more. And now it's something that we have to be much more conscious about in terms of our budgeting for that. Blacker also says she's cut back on concert tickets and even canceled her gym membership. Well, the Federal Reserve has aggressively raised interest rates in in an effort to curb this inflation. Uh, Is it ready to declare that it's won? Not just yet. Uh, Inflation is still above the Fed's target, which is 2%. And analysts are fairly sure the Fed's going to raise interest rates at least once more when policymakers meet in a couple of weeks. Uh, If inflation continues to trend down, however, that could be the last interest rate hike for a while. And if so, that would reduce the risk of rising rates tipping the economy into a recession. NPR Scott Horsley. Thanks, Scott. You're welcome. The Food and Drug Administration began cracking down on vaping back in 2020 by requiring products be approved for sale. To date, only 23 e-cigarette products are legal to sell, and they are all tobacco-flavored. Yet illegal products, notably the very popular disposable and flavored vapes, remain widely available online, in stores. And Piers Yukinaguchi explains why. Nancy Heredia Villanueva's oldest daughter had just started high school when she made a discovery that led her into a frustrating and convoluted drama. Her backpack was kind of hanging open and I went to zip it up and she got really defensive about it. And it fight ensued. It was like a tug of war over the backpack. Her daughter wrested it away, then locked herself in a bathroom. Villanueva enlisted her husband. Me and him, we like tore the whole bathroom apart and we found four vapes behind the bathroom mirror. Villanueva was shocked. She had no idea her daughter, a soccer player, had gotten hooked on vaping the year prior. She'd neither seen nor smelled vapors from the colorful, candy-flavored disposable e-cigarettes. Sale of those are illegal under both federal and New Jersey state law. But her daughter and other underage friends bought them at a gas station in a town next to Dunellen, where they live. 
Enraged, Villanueva and another parent confronted the store's cashier. I want to know why you're selling our kids vapes. Villanueva filmed the video, then posted it on a mom's group. But you have sold them vapes because all our kids bought vapes from this store. That video went viral. Responses to it startled her. I was getting death threats, like my kids were threatened, my husband was threatened. Often by kids who frequented that gas station. I didn't even realize until that happened that it was such a huge issue. All the kids in all the local towns and cities all knew about that place, and they were upset that I had brought to light that they were selling to underage kids. Regulators want to restrict e-cigarette use to adults, but in reality, the market for illegal vapes that appeal to young people continues to expand. Christy Marinak is a senior scientist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Her recent analysis shows explosive growth, especially of unapproved products. The number of brands increased by 46 percent over two years to about 200 brands. And those brands market thousands of products. This is an industry that is very motivated to stay in business and continue marketing products that are highly addictive and heavily flavored. Products that repopularized used nicotine use within the past decade. And you see an increase of over 2,000 percent of high school users using disposables now that the FDA has said is illegal, that is contraband. Richard Marianos is a former assistant director at the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. He says nearly all the world's e-cigarettes, 90 percent, come from factories in Shenzhen, China. But poor diplomatic relations make it hard to stop the influx. As you can see from dealing with the economy or spying or balloons being flown over the United States, that stopping producing vapes to kids is not their top priority. Recently, the FDA took more steps. It banned imports of some popular black market products, including Elf Bar and Escobar. It also sent warnings to nearly 200 retailers selling them. Will such measures work? Dorian Furman isn't sure. She co-founded Parents Against Vaping e-cigarettes. Hopefully, we will see a slowdown in the flood of products that are coming in through China. But she says the constant introduction of new brands and products makes it hard to close loopholes. Tomorrow, you might have a totally different brand. Like you have these brands called Fume. You have other brands, which means that they're going to have to be very comprehensive in the names of the brands that they put on these lists. That's why many anti-smoking advocates argue local inspection of retailers and fines are necessary. But Nancy Heredia Villanueva, the mom who stormed the gas station, says her local authorities haven't shown interest. First, she reported the store to police. I had to actually email ordinances to the uh, detective because he had no idea. And then even then he's like, well, what am I supposed to do about it? Then she complained to the mayor. What is being done? And I pretty much got nowhere with that either. There's lots of laws in the state of New Jersey. There's even in our own town, but there's not a plan as to how to enforce it. Frank Armstrong owns Blue Ridge Tobacco, a chain with seven tobacco stores in North Carolina and Virginia. He says local inspectors already monitor for underage sales and now should crack down on sales of illegal vapes. He's removed products the FDA cited from his shelves but noticed they're still available elsewhere. Today I went online and said, okay, if I wanted to get elf bars, where would I get them? You go online, look at all the people that are selling them. So Armstrong says stores need clarity about which products are legal to sell, as well as inspections to back it up. If there's no enforcement, then 
we're the only ones that are taking them off the shelves and our competition is not. Therefore, then I lose business to the guy down the street. Meanwhile, the fight continues for New Jersey mom Nancy Heredia Villanueva a year and a half after discovering her daughter's vapes. She says education and even awareness remain a challenge. A lot of parents are ignorant to the fact like, oh, my kid's not doing that. I was one of those parents. Her daughter, now 16, thought vapes were harmless, like fruit-flavored water. But in fact, Villanueva says her daughter went through withdrawals before eventually quitting. I feel like it impacted her mental health, too. You know, it's been very difficult. Like, I just feel like she wasn't the same after that. Villanueva says she still gets threats, but says it only makes her more outspoken. But I didn't back down. I mean, I'm not the type of person, especially when it comes to my children and their safety and their well-being, I'm not going to back down. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. Mexico has been rocked by violence over the last few days. Police have confronted protesters in the state of Guerrero, and overnight a series of explosions left six people dead in Jalisco State, NPR's Ader Peralta reports. The violence started Monday when thousands of protesters blocked the highway that runs from Mexico City to the beach town of Acapulco. Protesters demanded the release of a bus driver who was found with weapons and drugs, and they quickly overpowered security forces. They kidnapped more than a dozen police officers and government officials. Police say they were mobilized by a criminal group known as Los Ardillos. In the end, at least six people were killed. And as the week went on, things only got worse. On Tuesday night, another organized crime group detonated seven improvised explosive devices targeting police officers in the state of Jalisco. At least six people were killed. Es eh, un acto de terror. It was an act of brutal terror, said Governor Enrique Alfaro. President Andrés Manuel López Obrador blamed the violence on government neglect. He said organized crime had filled the void. And now, in some parts of Mexico, they have enough popular support to cause mayhem. Ida Peralta, NPR News, San Marcos de Colón, Honduras. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on Marketplace this evening, why cottage cheese is getting popular again. Across the board gains on Wall Street, the Dow picked up a quarter of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ closed at their highest level since April of last year. S&P gained three quarters of a percent. The NASDAQ rose more than one full percent. Truck rental company Penske will pay Massachusetts a settlement of up to $3.5 million. State Attorney General Andrea Campbell alleges the company conducted nearly 200 fraudulent safety and emissions inspections at its new Bedford facility. The heavy-duty trucks with the allegedly fake inspections were rented and leased for commercial use. The six workers who conducted the inspections or accused of it are barred indefinitely from doing that type of work once again. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com. Listen to WBR anywhere you're heading this summer. Just tap to listen live and catch up on everything that's happening in the news. Download or update the WBUR app now. In the forecast, clouds overnight tonight, some rain likely, temperatures down around 70 degrees. For tomorrow, clouds and sunshine, both another hot day, temperatures in the upper 80s, which is where it is right now, 88 degrees in Boston at 620.
WVUR supporters include Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. One of the most cutting-edge and controversial fields of biomedical research right now is the quest to create eggs and sperm in the lab for anyone with their own DNA. And now private companies have jumped into the race to revolutionize the way humans reproduce. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein reports on what these startups are up to. It's a cloudy day in Berkeley, California. I turn onto a gritty side street near the San Francisco Bay and ring the bell on a low concrete building with big frosted glass doors. I'm Rob Stein from NPR. Hey, I'm Matt Krisiloff. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Matt Krisiloff is one of the founders of a company called Conception. So let me find them real quick. And then... We walk through a big open space filled with computer stations to find a quiet room. What are you guys trying to do? What's Conception all about? Yeah, so basically we're trying to turn a type of stem cell called an induced pluripotent stem cell into a human egg, ultimately with the goal, if it's safe, to do it for fertility purposes. And why? Really opens the door if you can create eggs to be able to help people have children that otherwise don't have options right now. Like women whose eggs are too old, enabling them to have their own genetically related kids at any age because induced pluripotent stem cells can be made from just a single cell from anyone's skin or blood. So these lab-grown eggs would have all of their DNA. It's called in vitro gametogenesis, or IVG. My personal biggest interest in it is that it could allow same-sex couples to be able to have biological children together as well. Um, Yeah, I'm gay, and it's something that got me so personally interested in this in the first place. Same goes for one of Krisilov's co-founders, Pablo Hurtado. There is something intrinsic sharing a life that is half me and half my husband. I don't have that capacity right now. And I am devoting my life to try to change that. Because IVG could create eggs from one of his cells that could make a baby with sperm from his partner. Vice versa for lesbian couples. Same goes for trans couples. And they say the company's gotten closer to making IVG a reality than anyone else. To show me what they've done and how, Bianca Serres, their third co-founder, takes me into their lab. It's quite loud in here with all the machines running. The big labs packed with specialized equipment. Dozens of scientists wearing white lab coats are busy conducting experiments. Hurtado opens an incubator and pulls out a clear round lab dish. These are primordial gem cell light cells. Stem cells that the company made from human blood cells and then coaxed into developing into cells that could become either sperm or eggs. They already decided that they are going to become an egg or a sperm, but they haven't decided yet that they are going to become an egg, and that's something that we do later on. Instead of clumping together in colonies like stem cells, each primordial germ cell-like cell is visibly much more distinct. So in this case, you can see each individual cell as a circle. Can I look through the microscope to see what they look like? Yeah, please look for the microscope. Oh, wow. Yeah, I see them. Once they start to become something else, start to become a little bit more independent or something? Yeah, they are maturing into becoming more independent. And in fact, fun fact is X cells are truly independent and they actually will need to become one cell within that follicle. A follicle, the part of a woman's ovaries that cradles each egg into maturity. 
Hurtado quickly returns the cells to the incubator and pulls out a rectangular dish. These are some of our mini ovaries. These are a few weeks old now. The mini ovaries are combinations of cells the company made to nurture the primordial germ cell-like cells into their next step of development. Another microscope projects what's in that dish onto a screen. Hopefully what you can appreciate here is you can see our mini ovary. And then you can see a lot of dots that are really red fluorescent. Each of those cells is a germ cell. A germ cell. A very immature human egg cell. I like to call it a Christmas tree because it's like all the lights make people happy when they see something like this. <laughs> but, but this is sort of like a little factory to make human eggs for women who are infertile or gay men who want to have babies. Yeah, yeah. It's really exciting to be working on a technology that can change the life of millions of humans. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Within a year, Krisloff hopes they'll prove the follicles in those mini ovaries can mature the immature eggs into fully developed eggs. And so as far as we know, we're the first in the world that have been able to do this. So it's really exciting because we think it means we're quite close to being able to have proof of concept human eggs instead of this abstract idea that's really just an imaginative science fiction idea that really indicates that, hey, this technology is actually closer than people think. Now, the companies only released a few details about their experiments, so independent scientists can't validate their claims, and some are skeptical. Kristoloff acknowledges that a lot more research is needed to prove the company could produce viable eggs that would be safe to use. But he's confident they're on the cusp of success. Already, the work is creating a lot of excitement, but also a lot of concerns. This could take us into a kind of a Gattaca world. Marcy Darnowski runs the Center for Genetics and Society in Berkeley. She says, combined with new gene editing techniques, IVG could fuel all kinds of dystopian scenarios, including designer babies. Combining IVG and genome editing and commercialization, you've really got kind of a toxic stew to create people who are supposedly biologically superior to others. We don't want to pave the road toward any kind of future that looks anything like that. But for another perspective, I travel about an hour south to talk with Stanford University bioethicist Hank Greeley. Have a seat. Thank you. I'm a fan of the IVG idea. I think it offers the possibility for millions of couples who desperately want to have kids that are genetically half one, half the other, who can't do that now, to have those children. That said, Greeley also worries about commercial pressures pushing IVG too fast. Rob, I live in Silicon Valley where the motto is move fast and break things. Of course it worries me. Happily, the FDA does not want you to move fast and break things, and the FDA has a lot of power. I'm confident the FDA will use that power because we don't think babies are like iPhones. Greeley acknowledges that there are lots of possibilities that raise thorny questions, like using cells from children, the elderly, even dead people to make babies, or cells stolen from celebrities to make babies without their consent. A person could even make babies with nothing but their own DNA. Part of me says, you know, why worry about these wild scenarios? Who in the world would do that? And then I think there are 8 billion people in the world, and, you know, there are some rich megalomaniacs out there, we won't name names, who I can imagine might think that was cool. 
Back at conception, Matt Krisloff and his colleagues acknowledged the concerns, but they told me they would welcome government regulation. Can it go down pathways where, you know, people try and do weird, like, designer aspects or much more out there things? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair thing to worry about, and there's all sorts of gray areas that society really needs to figure out. But, yeah, opening this door for so many more people is including, you know, me and Pablo, a really cool thing. If it could lead to so many people being able to have families and children being able to have lives, I just think that's a really beautiful thing. Rob Stein, NPR News, Berkeley, California. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports, New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft, former Pats GM Bucko Kilroy, and Patriots Hall of Fame receiver Stanley Morgan have all been named semifinalists for the NFL Hall of Fame. Summer basketball tonight. At 10 o'clock, the Celtics take on the L.A. Lakers in Las Vegas in NBA's Summer League action. Also, the New England Revolution host Atlanta United FC tonight at Foxborough. The Revs are third in Major League Soccer's Eastern Division. This is WBUR. It is 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com.